0: Hey, this is Dinez. And this is Franny. And you're listening to Roll Call, a Versus special series on the past, future, and present of Black poetry and poetics. Yes.
1: This is the second episode in this six-part mini-series that will be airing um, between seasons five and six of Versus. Um, And yeah, Dinez, do you want to tell us about what this second episode is about?
0: Yes, you are about to listen to Breaking the Line, a conversation about Black visual poetics uh, with your host, Keith S. Wilson, today, produced by Justin Zulo, Uh, Keith is going to offer us a window into the world of the Black visual. Um, So this is one, a good one to, you know, take a moment, close your eyes, and imagine um, the wild possibilities of these poems as they play out on the page, but today play out in your ear with a couple of interviews and, of course, with deep time with Keith. Keith and his amazing brain. Um, Such a good brain. Such a good brain. Uh, Get ready for a truly wild and visionary conversation about the Black visual with Keith Wilson. Yay! When you think of innovative Black poetry, what do you envision? Maybe you think of the jazz influences of Yusuf Komunyaka. I love Komunyaka. He's one of my favorite poets. If you haven't read Anodyne, you should go find it. Or Gwendolyn Brooks. Maybe you've heard her read We Real Cool at the Poetry Foundation and love how she pronounces we. Or maybe you can't envision anything. And if that's the case, that's one of those shared letdowns that the world is at least partially responsible for. Like if you managed to go your whole life without anyone ever letting you know about jazz. But I'm getting ahead of myself. My name is Keith S. Wilson. I'm a poet living through the transition between Chicago and Stanford, as a stegner fellow of poetry and this is breaking the line a conversation about black visual poetics so back to that question when it comes to the sharing of black poetry my experience in class especially has largely been to think of black innovation through its musicality in poetry inspired by blues traditions jazz traditions and spoken word traditions and of course i agree but I've also always felt black excellence resists boundaries and that conversations tend toward them. What happens if we try just for a moment to talk about poems that look instead of sound a certain way? I'm talking about visual poems, a poem that uses visual elements as well as traditional poetic ones to express something. One way I like to think about it, a visual poem uses things that the moment you read them aloud are rendered totally invisible the translation of them to the air loses something, or at the very least, changes something about them. So one example of a visual element is actually the line break. If you've ever been to a poetry reading, then looked up a poem afterwards, you may have been surprised to see what the poem actually looks like. Those line breaks are important, they're communicating something for that poem, but you have to see it, I guess, to believe it. I haven't been writing visual poetry for my whole life, but I have been writing poetry for as long as I can remember. I think for me, all my interests in video games and photography and art and graphic design all just sort of mix together when I make things. But that's just me. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with two black poets writing work that pushes the boundaries of poetry. Poems that create a slippage between words and images, as Allison C. Rollins puts it, or as you'll hear sean webster say poems which break the line i'm here looking at a poem a visual poem i think called a song by any other name by the poet Allison c rollins the poem is a few orders of facsimile it's a digital photograph of what appears to be a scan of a page from a book on songbirds the texture of the page is the effect you get from a copy that sandy, slight gray anyone who has ever seen a xerox of a teacher's handout would recognize. You can see the corner of the page curl slightly from the surface behind the poem, a little bit of shadow. At the top half of the page are songbirds in various poses, standing as if on the ground, or sometimes on a ghostly branch. About half of the birds are silhouettes only. You can see from the tiniest bits of paper that they've been cut out somehow. For me, I'm drawn to the voided birds, My eyes move in the snaking river they make across the page to the bottom half. And there, in the bottom half of the page, are two columns of a numbered list. This list appears to correspond to the numbered birds, with the names of these birds. But many of these lines have been pasted over with new text printed on tiny rectangles of paper. Even though physically, these pieces don't resemble birds. The missingness of the birds above make these words, the words added by the poet, feel to me like birds.
2: view objects as kind of dead or passive things for me to do things to. I view them as collaborators. So just because it's a a library book or an old book or something, it doesn't mean that it's just sitting there waiting for me to do things to it. I think it also has the means to collaborate with me.
0: That's Allison.
2: As a kid, I grew up in the era of world books. Like, I didn't have a computer in my home that had internet that was, I mean, you know, we had dial up at a point. Like, you know, I was used to go, you went to the world book, you looked for, if you were doing a research presentation on a country or something, like, you went to that, you hoped it was up to date, and then you got your information. Maybe it had a picture or some type of illustration. So that's, you know, the old school analog method. And then working as a librarian, a lot of those resource books become very old and outdated. So they're sitting on the shelves dusty. No one wants to use them anymore. They're kind of considered often they don't have politically correct information. And so a lot of times the resource materials in public libraries and institutional libraries literally never get touched. They literally just sit there (laughs) collecting dust for decades. And so um, part of my excitement for the visual poems I've been making most recently were like breathing new life and energy into these things that are kind of obsolete. Like they serve really zero to no purpose in terms of modern day access most people are utilizing their phones or they're looking online for up-to-date information so there's all these really rich materials and beautifully bound books with really cool illustrations and content that just don't get loved on one through 20 songbirds singing birds songsters listen you hate to see it crows Let me rope you in. Amongst the two blacks is misery enough, God knows, but no poetry. For the starling, pastor, shepherd bird, No 14 nestled in a nest. The particular poem I read is um, the visuals from a pictorial dictionary. So it's the tradition of dictionaries that have a picture of something. It has a drawing of an apple and then you learn the word for apple. And this particular one is a German to English one. So you're learning two languages as well as like the visual stimulus of an image. And so I'm, I'm really curious about like the way we connect sound and also words like letters that are symbols. They're literally just. pictures (laughs) pictures <laughs> to a thing that is also like removed from the thing the crown lost its head and a cloud of sweet rain was a lyric tuned in to the keyhole stars i've yet to speak of voice as instrument to do so i would have to sound off unladylike on account of my seedy character the early five gets the worm. I really enjoy playing with exacto knives. And so I cut out some of the birds and piecemeal black paper behind them. Because I'm also interested in this, like, there's always things missing or a slippage when we're using language or when we're presenting a visual. It's not the real thing. Um, and so I wanted to create these kind of black holes or portals often when you just kind of drop into nothingness or there is no um, referential as they're supposed to be eleven times I have been dragged. The blackbird tip drills. Fourteen, the nightingale poet is epic in scope. God said three is what I'm afraid of. Sixteen, the song thrush poet set free. Because it's verse. referencing and has visuals of birds, I like to think of the Reading or visual experience for that poem as a type of like flitting. Like when birds' wings are, they're like hummingbirds, they're kind of in place or not necessarily moving, but there's actual movement in place of the wingspan. And so I think. What I'm interested in is not necessarily controlling where the eyes go, but allowing for the eyes to move up and down, across back, refer back, refer forward, like to get kind of lost in a a maze of an experience rather than a straightforward pathway, if that makes sense. Lily White, 18 and 19, the mountain and the Skylark are at one another's throats. Beyond what I can imagine, night is backwash, a swallow. So the driving experience is not going down the highway straight, but is looking at the off-ramp, getting back on, pulling to the side, coming back, reversing the car, moving, like it's interested in kind of um, flitting or moving without boundaries in a way that could be considered disorienting or not necessarily um, straightforward. As poets, when we are constructing or writing a piece on the page, the poem actually does function as a type of score, a musical score. So depending on where we have line breaks, depending on where we have enjambment, depending on how we have situated the language or words or letters on the page, I do think that instructs readers to think about when they can take a breath both in terms of content, like the amount of content they're encountering, and also in terms of literally pausing (laughs) in terms of their reading to give a little bit of breathing room before moving on to something else, a new idea or a new line.
0: I'm looking at an untitled piece by Sean Webster. The white space of a page, all the places where nothing is printed, is a quality we never hear exactly. But this poem is swimming in it, and the typeface it's written in is almost swirling. There is a loop in the W's that reminds me of waves. All of the poem is italicized in a kind of urgency, or struggle, and the top portion of the text has a number of single lines, mono stitches, that stand out on their own, first on the left side of the page, then the right, and so on ending in a single word, water. The bottom half of the text is a single prose-like block, in contrast to the bottom third of the page, which is totally empty.
1: First site that I would say is like a part of like my, uh, you know, upbringing and 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 what brought me into a tradition of like a black word work uh, was the church. Um, A lot of what I'm using is like certain kinds of um, of sonic gestures, and so like repetition being something that I'm using a lot within the text is a means of trying to um, both return and to revisit, but like with. Uh, what Ashon Crawley talks about in Lonely Letters, a part of it is like utilizing the Black Pentecostal tradition of like how Black folks have always had the ability to return to a site sonically and make it new, right? As a means of almost like um, as a as a process of, of study, you know. And so what you see, um, you know, choirs doing on Sunday morning um, is is very much a part of, of my own kind of influence, right? Like is that people are able to, to sit and sing a verse that might last 15 minutes, you know, um, and somehow all of that is not exhausting its own meaning. It's, it's that kind of ability to, to stretch meaning in such a small space. Wait in the water, wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God's God. Sometimes the abstraction is the looking water. to disrupt a perceived linearity to wait space and time by its superimposition. Of text, Sometimes there is a way in which I am looking to go back again and again to something that might sound the same, and yet through its repetition find something new and carve out another kind of space. And so the repetition is a methodology for getting at something else, even though it might seem that I'm doing something that that is is the same in the water gonna wade gonna trouble gonna children in the water gonna water gonna wade gonna gods in the water children wade children water children gods in the water trouble water Trouble wade, trouble children, trouble gods in the water, gods trouble. In the water, gods children wade, in the water, trouble gonna water the waiting children of God. Gonna trouble the children waiting, gonna water the children in God's water, in the children's water, gonna trouble the trouble. In the water, the waiting children are finished waiting in the trouble. In the water, the waiting children gonna trouble the gods. But going back and thinking about like rhetorically what was happening there, like it, it left a, a really lasting mark on me, right? And so so even in terms of the practice, for instance, of like speaking in tongues, right? Like, and so when I think about what I do with the superimposition of text, like speaking in tongues is a kind of like what um, some folks would look at as a kind of nonsense language that folks are making as they're starting to, uh, you know, let the spirit take control of their, uh, of their body, their mind, their mouth, right? And they're speaking a language that is unknown to them and yet, Um, you know, someone within the congregation might be able to interpret like what's being said. And so some people believe that that's a language that is actually spoken on earth. Others believe that those are languages that might not necessarily even be spoken on earth. They might be heavenly languages, but they are languages that themselves can be interpreted. And a part of what I appreciate about that, even though I'm not Um, necessarily someone that practices that any longer, but a part of what I appreciate about it is that it disrupts a particular kind of um, enlightenment rationality around how we think about um, adhering to certain rules around language, right? And so it's a giving over of oneself into what might be considered nonsense, Um, Again, like, you know, with certain gestures visually in terms of like superimposition, right? Like in like what that might mean sonically to me, like a part of where my mind goes is like, oh, well, that's a part of the practice of speaking in tongues. So for me, those gestures have a site that like started to like really, for me, get to get me thinking about those things, right? Like that, that to me is a, a sort of origin for how I start to think about certain gestures that I do visually. And so for me, not coming from a poetry like tradition formally, like I think opened me up to being able to say, OK, well, this is all, uh, all of this shit is possible in poetry. You know, like ain't none of this locked in in a particular kind of way. Right. Like that. Um, I, I can look to a, uh, a broad body of you know, so-called disciplines to be able to inform what I'm attempting to do within the work um, of poetry. And that that I feel like, you know, poetry may do a little bit better in some ways than other, uh, you know, so-called disciplines is that it's transgressive. It can be, at least in its uh, um, highest realization of its potential. It's very transgressive, you know? Um, transgressive of borders, right? Uh, but poetry itself, I think, when it realizes its potential, it can it can do some things. In so many ways, I think all poems are visual in that in the West, in particular, we have a difficult time engaging with and seeing the visuality of text there's a kind of assumed background that the text holds and it becomes a kind of vehicle to get us to meaning um so in so many ways i i tried to disrupt that um but but yeah i think this this poem um is disrupting perhaps some of what we know in this familiar song through the repetition and sound. And some of that is taking place visually. However, I think that the abstraction is happening primarily somewhere else through that kind of process of destruction to, to, to create ass. So, so maybe you're trying to tear some of the attempts to like, create through that kind of process of destruction to,
0: to create ass.
1: interested in what do we do with the outer limits right like how do we how do we start to to think about what exists outside of narrative or what might possibly be able to exist outside of narrative um, and other ways of being um, because our notions of being are wrapped up in a kind of destruction of a particular, set of folks who exist outside of being, right? Like the human as a category. There's a structural antagonism um, to anti-blackness, right? Like that is a um, founding logic, right? To the world, you know, and to the gears of the world. A part of what, you know, a number of like Afro-pessimist thinkers would would say about narrative is that narrative is itself anti-black because Blackness does not fit within the precepts of narrative, that blackness doesn't have the possibility um, for a ma or resolution, right? That, um, you know, within narrative, we have the structure of um, plenitude and then law, and then you have that kind of recuperative moment in terms of the ma. Um, and that for blackness there is no ma, because there's not even the capacity for laws, right. And so um, to to be in that position, right. Like if we agree for that to be true, right. Like if that's a if that's a basic assumption within this conversation and specifically it's something that I adhere to, right? Like if that's the case, then then the attempt to disrupt for me is about how, how to be angular and how to exist outside of narrative in some way and how to speak outside of narrative. I don't know that what I'm attempting to do you know, would be able to like fall within the like structure of narrative or at least that that would be too confining for what I'm wanting to do. Um, and if I'm agreeing or if I'm thinking about narrative itself as being anti-black, how do you break narrative? How do, you, how do you break from the structure of narrative? I think that poetry is a space where, where that might be uh, possible, I'm not sure. Um, I, don't know that, uh, I don't know that I've landed on that. Um, but um, and so I think that that's a part of what I'm talking about in terms of like, uh, what is the importance of breaking the line, right? Like I think that a part of the importance is like, how, how do we start to break our assumptions with meaning itself? Um, and I think that Black folks have a very, uh, you know, not an, the only role, but an important role to play in it. And so I think that there's something quite, quite unique to our relationship to this world. And so I'm doing that work through poetry. I think a lot of folks are, uh, are doing that work in a, in a number of different ways.
2: the more we can expand possibility on the page, because we're arguably kind of limited to the plane of the page, the more really cool things can happen. Um, And I think just by virtue of like being a black queer poet, I'm already, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, I'm not possible. So I don't really, you know, it's already kind of operating in the state of disbelief or anti whatever poetic establishment. So why not push the boundaries even further or, um, just blur the lines even more. A lot of people have A lot of barriers to access in terms of encountering contemporary poetry, or a lot of people have particular hangups in terms of worrying about getting the poem wrong or incorrect, or they don't feel that they're qualified to speak about a poem. And so I think visual poetry just opens more doors. It opens more windows to readers and viewers where they can find a way into the poem. They can find something to say or something interesting about it. um, And maybe that creates more access points, I think, than a traditional sonnet or a sestina or a villanelle. Um, I think it's really disrupting and challenging and expanding the form in really interesting visual ways. I really do think, like, we're always reading. Like, when, when I walk into a space or a room, I'm reading who else looks like me, um, what is the socioeconomic status of the people around me? How, like what streets did I park my car? Co- like we're always reading, intaking, processing, synthesizing, rejecting information. And so I really do feel like if we, if we expand how we define reading or like what that means, then suddenly I think people are validated in a different way or people feel um, a bit more free or loose in their own experience in taking art.
0: Hi, it's Keith again, and this was Breaking the Line, a conversation about black visual poetics. I just wanted to say how grateful I am to have had an opportunity to talk with and listen to these brilliant poets, Allison C. Rollins and Sean Webster. And a reminder, we're listening to a visual medium. I urge everyone to check out the show notes of this podcast and see what each of these poets' work looks like. Words don't do it justice.